Welcome to Leaning In and Speaking Out, a Research Connection podcast. This is a podcast from Brandon University's Centre for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies, or BU Cares. Every episode, we connect with a researcher and a community member around a topic of interest. We want to model how research connects with the broader community and highlight the knowledge that both researchers and community members bring to the table. We're talking today about the ethics of storytelling, and I want to begin with a land acknowledgement, recognizing that uh, for three of us in this conversation, we are here on Treaty 2 lands. Um, these are the traditional homelands of the Dakota, the Anishinaabe, the Oji Cree, the Cree, Dene, and Métis peoples. And Doug, would you like to do a land acknowledgement for where you are? Sure, yes. I'd like to acknowledge uh, the land of the Gadigal Wangal peoples and pay my respect to elders past and present. And um, I'd like to also acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you. I wonder if we could just begin by introducing ourselves a little bit and how we fit into this conversation. My name is uh, Kevin Tachan, and uh, I'm from Sioux Valley, Dakota Nation. I'm just west of Brandon in Manitoba, and uh, I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, my name is Doug Cronin, and I'm here on the land of the Gadigal Wangal people, commonly known as Sydney, Australia. And um, I'm involved in uh, ethical storytelling as both a practitioner and early stage PhD student researcher. Hi, I'm Jackie Kirk and I work in the Department of Educational Administration Leadership at Brandon University and I'm a co-host of the podcast. And I'm Michelle, I'm the other co-host of the podcast, and I'm the director of BU Cares, which is a research centre in the Faculty of Education at Brandon University. And our mandate is to facilitate and promote research with communities that are Indigenous and rural. And so that's uh, what we do. And I want to just begin with a question, sort of to set the stage for this conversation, um, what, around the ethics of storytelling. What kinds of assumptions might organizations or individuals make when they're asking people to share their stories? Okay, so I guess the whole thing about assumptions, um, I, I think what we've got used to it, uh, what we talk a lot with my social enterprise, our race, is we talk a lot about this sort of formula of storytelling, whereas this sort of idea that there's this uh, colonial narrative, but we don't actually look at that. So the assumption is we need to tell story in a very particular way. And so that particular way is very much targeted at a white normal, at, a, at this, this idea of here, probably I'd say in Canada and also here in Australia, that idea that the person who's sharing a story from a marginalized or um, under resourced community is there to share their story to try and fit into the, the white normal, to try and assimilate. So that story often becomes something where that it's a success story. So escaping a place of like escaping hell, arriving in paradise and assimilating. And I think a lot of the time there's this expectation that people need to share this story like Hollywood, where you have this sort of version where that, that person's come, overcome adversity and the success is the closer that they've become to white society. 
And of course, that's problematic for, for many reasons because it, it directly um, silences the First Nations people and it also silences anybody else who has a different cultural, um, uh, sexual um, uh, ability-wise um, background. It's very much based on the sort of heteronormal. Yeah, I can see that in the, in the refugee research that I've done, just sort of that narrative that they have to feel grateful for their new home and they have to talk about how bad it was and how grateful they are to be here. You know, I can, I can definitely see the, the threads and the themes of what you're describing. I wonder, Kevin, is there something you want to jump in there about some of your, I know you, you've been described to me as a storyteller, so I wonder if there's something there that you want to bring in. Um, I've been seen as a storyteller for the last last while. I, I don't kind of don't know how I kind of stumbled into this thing, but uh, a lot of the information that was given to me over in my life, uh, I've kind of hung on to it and passed it on uh, wherever I can. And when I'm asked to do stories, a lot of times uh, they ask me questions about uh, historical historical uh, narratives. And they don't want to know what's happening today, what the current issues are, what the current things are, or they want stories that have been affected uh, by uh, colonization. Our stories are, are very, very different. And uh, we forget about the, the protocols and stuff that go along with our stories, like some of our creation stories and things like that. We're only done a certain time of the year and, and done in the language. And there was often giveaways and things like that that happened during these stories. And, and people uh, forget the, that using that language of, of stories, myths and legends kind of minimizes what's reality for, for my people. But uh, mm. for a, a lack of a, of a place to do a lot of this education, storytelling uh, has kind of been rolled back a little bit for us so that we were able to educate people on who we are. Yeah, it's really interesting, Kevin. Like I think that whole thing of being asked or what type of stories to share. Um, and I think that's one of the things I really am interested in because you know, often this, the story, when it gets taken out of that context, out of the cultural context, it's then somebody asking for that story and it's a, a performance of some sort that they're asking for. There's conditions placed on what they want you to share. No, uh, we want you to talk about this, but not that. We want to talk about this time of the year, not that time of the year. And then I think a lot of time that organization, they'll choose say something like Refugee Week or they'll choose something around a National Indigenous Day. And that day they have all these sort of stories and it's all being curated. And then you go, but what are you doing for the rest of the year? There's, there's the, the aspect there of that, well, what's, you know, how they're inviting people in and setting conditions on people to share those stories. But then also that next part, what are they actually doing? Are they doing anything more those other 364 days of the year around First Nations rights or around refugee rights? Um, and, and I think that's where I find it gets very problematic with um, how that sort of system or ecosystem of storytelling works. Yes, the romantic, romanticism of our, of our ways here and over there 
it's pretty obvious uh, when I see anything on, on uh, the Aboriginal people of Australia, it's always a, a mystical thing. Uh, it's always, um, even for our people, they, they want to focus on on uh, the magical parts of our culture or uh, there's a fascination with the spirituality of our culture and uh, the rest of the history is, is kind of forgotten. So when I go into some of the places and, and ask to do storytelling, I, I tell harsh history uh, first so they can understand uh, the context of, of who we are. Uh, some of the, I don't do a lot of residential school. I do a lot of stuff before that era but uh, I make sure that uh, I educate as much as I can without uh, entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I like to yeah. The truth. Yeah. Interesting. You're making me reflect on something that I uh, thought a lot about as a teacher. Um, and with you know, teaching in a school division where we had lots of um, uh, First Nations students in Saskatchewan um, and lots of white settler students. Um, and I noticed that when we had elders from the communities come in to talk that um, we often had really poor behavior among our settler students. And Yet when our teachers were doing storytelling in their classrooms, um, the poor behavior was often among the First Nations students. And I started developing a theory where I felt like the sort of the cadence of the storytelling was different and that we were um, culturally, I don't know, I don't wanna say programmed, but um, used to listening and hearing and understanding the stories that were told within our cultural groups because the switch back and forth between who I was trying to manage when we had a guest speaker in um, was really significant. Like I couldn't, I could almost predict depending on who was coming in to talk, who it was that I was going to need to sit beside. And I, I, Doug, when you said your first statement and talked about that story as performance, I thought, oh yeah, that's that's what that was about. Um, that, you know, lots of our elders would come in and they would tell stories and our white students who were looking for the performance um, couldn't contain themselves, I guess. Mm. I don't know, just, I don't know if that make sense at all but um it was one of my observations yeah look it's, it's interesting because um uh, a few years ago um i think it was when i i don't know if you were there michelle in sydney for the metropolis conference no i wasn't you weren't at that one okay so it was just before that so the metropolis conference in sydney and um there were times there where uh people were doing they had you know, elders coming in, elder coming in, do welcome to country. I think it was the evening before. And as that person is doing the welcome to country, all these people are just talking, talking between themselves. And I thought, what are you doing here? And these are the people that I expected to be doing so much better because they're there talking about racial, social justice, um, talking about resettlement, all these sort of things. And there was no respect at all. 
And I just, and I, and, and I've seen it so many times. So I don't think it's just young people. No. And actually, Kevin, I, I watched your speech um, from 2019 with your keynote speaker at um, a conference. Uh, I can't remember which one it was now, the name of it, but you mentioned apathy. And there was something that you even said that, that you know, they said the room was full before. And now that now it's not, you know, because something you said, and it was about language you were talking about. I think it goes across so many ways where you could say, and you said, uh, I wrote it down and said, someone else will, someone else will learn it. Someone else would do it. And you said, this room was full before. Um, uh, but now I'll just go get a coffee. You know, that, that I think so many times is that, that lack of importance. If they're not, if that person isn't sharing the performative story that they expect that person to share. Mm. Yes, I, I, I vaguely remember it. I remember having conversations with some of the, the political leadership after that and, and some of the organizers and, and uh, they, the political leadership there in the room didn't have the, the respect or the, the knowledge uh, with the protocols, with the storytelling and things like that. And uh, they came in just like, like people, the way they treat elders or the way they treat storytellers, you come in to do a performance or you call an elder and, and all you want them to do is the prayer. Mm -hmm. The chiefs went in there and they just opened it up and showed some declarations and signed some papers and waved to the crowd and, and then they walked out. And then the people who wanted to lobby them walked out with them. And uh, it, it was it was good. The people that needed to be there were there. Mm. And so I was happy with the people that stayed behind. And I met a lot of really good people from there. But, uh, yeah, yeah it, it was interesting. I remember uh, I remember talking to uh, I worked in a school division. I still I'm still there for 25 years, and I go to 23 different schools from K to 12, and I'm asked to do storytelling quite a bit. And uh, I. Uh, I went into a lot of classrooms and the teachers always asked me, how did you keep their attention? Like all of them, you, you, could have, you could have heard a pin drop. And I told them that all of these stories have a spirit that goes along with it. Mm. And um, before I come into your classroom, I'm going to the bush or I'm going somewhere where there's a tree and I'm offering tobacco and I'm, <laughs> I'm telling these, these things to come in with me and so when I'm speaking, that, that they would help me. Uh, so the things that I need to say will come through and, and they'd be able to hear it. And so that's kind of how I do my storytelling. And uh, I, I've kept their attention for 25 years. And uh, it, it's, been, it's been really good. And a lot of those students have come out, out of there being storytellers themselves. And so we forget about that spiritual part of our, our storytelling and those protocols because they don't belong to us humans. A lot of these stories were inspired. So mm. you want to give back to those. One of the yeah. things I really appreciated about you recently, Kevin, was um, in one of your talks, you were talking about the, the history of the current locations around Brandon. And you talked about Nipawa and some of the words some of the names of these locations and that was something that I had never known even though I've lived in Brandon for I don't know how long maybe 15 years or something and so I feel like you know all of those stories have so you know it, it does just grab my attention but it's because it has a physical connection to where I am and where I'm situated now and so you know I can imagine that hill that you're talking about or I can imagine you know those places 
And so I think that personal connection too is part of that, you know, why students might feel so engaged because they have that personal, yeah, that personal connection. Yeah, I, I think it's good to tell some of the stories that some of the stories that I have and how we relate to our, our surroundings uh, in our community. I, I grab their attention as much as I can right off the bat for, for example, the, the, the Great Depression of 1929, 1930, when people were, were starving to death. Uh, there was a past system in place and our people weren't allowed to leave the boundaries of our reserve. And the farmers were dying all around us. And so we risked our lives to leave the boundaries of our community in the middle of the night to take food over there. And we fed all of these people all around us and we taught them how to fish and we taught them how to survive in this land and different things you can grow during a drought. And we made uh, close relatives with those families. And to this day and two generations later, we're still close with those families. And so when I mentioned the families and who we still kind of hang around with uh, the, the students in the classroom, say, I know who they are. I know them. I know their kids. And so we have to show those relationships on how we survive some of those tough things. And those are the kind of stories that I tell. Uh, it's it's uh, something that they can connect to. In all the years that I've been uh, telling stories, nobody has come up to me with tobacco and saying, said to me, can I use that story in my presentation? Or can I write that story down in my, in my thesis or anything like that? Nobody's, nobody's offered me anything like a gift or anything. So I'm assuming that all the stories that I've said for 25 years uh, are still with me and nobody else is telling those stories, but I know it's not true. Mm-hmm. People are sharing those same stories that I've, uh, that I've spoken about but uh, they didn't uh, respect those protocols on, on that gifting, even with tobacco. Yeah, that's interesting, Kevin. And I, I think that's, you know, the whole thing um, of extraction. I think it's, it's such a, you know, it's such, it's, it's been the history of colonization of extraction and it continues to happen today. Um, I, I recently, you know, looking say, say as a researcher um, where, where I was looking at doing the interviews and someone kept on referring to the people that I'd be interviewing as subjects. And, and I, and I just went, no, they're not subjects. They're, they're, they're humans that I'm interviewing who are offering me this. And I always find it such a struggle to be able to respect them. I mean, to show that respect back to them at the same level, because in the end, I'm the one who gets all the prestige from it. So, you know, that whole thing, how do I give that back? But unfortunately, most, or well, not most, a lot of people don't think about it in that way. And just recently, there was a, there was a tweet, a friend showed me this tweet that, they, that she was part of a podcast um, where she'd, she'd uh, well, they'd won an award or the woman who had uh, developed the podcast had won an award. And it said, congratulations to this person for winning this award um, and, and the subjects who shared their stories. And I and and then it was then retweeted by by a university, uh, an area that does really really good work within the refugee space, and they just perpetuated it by saying congratulations to this person and the refugees who shared their stories. So her name was there, but the the people who had been sharing the stories were either subjects or hashtag refugees. 
And it was, and, and when my friend showed me that, she was, she showed it to me, go, look at this. How good's this? We, we won this award. And I go, it's great, but look who's won the award. And, and I, and this is what I get so worried about as well as like for your stories, there might be people out there who, who are making money off those stories, um, winning awards for it, selling it as if it's their own story. <clears throat> and, and here, and then one of the things that I've got so interested in is that, that when they, they do share that story, because it hasn't been written down and you're, you're said it orally, but then they've written it down or, or filmed it and published it. They own the copyright and the intellectual property for it. And, and so it's so problematic that you think, well, do the people who are sharing their stories know the legal implications of sharing a story with a certain audience? And do the people who are capturing it actually care? And, and we're not talking about just organizations that you think are untrustworthy. These are ones that are high in social trust. And so it's advocacy organizations, it's media organizations who are doing this work. It's the advocacy organizations providing the story to a corporate to use that story. And, and, use, and for me, it always goes back to who benefits from the story and who's impacted by it. So I think about it where if there's a negative reaction to someone's story, it's going, to go, it's going to go back to that person who's the, sto the story holders or the ones who are represented in that story. But then if it gets an award, the person who gets the award is the director, it's the, um, the person who writes about it. It's never the story holder unless they, they're the ones who own the story. But, but because of the generosity of many people in sharing their stories, it's almost becomes that, that, uh, situation where the only ones who benefit are the ones who take control of that story without any consideration of the story holder themselves. And um, so what you're saying there, Kevin, about that, that you don't know what people are doing with it, or you kind of do, it, it's such a big problem. Yeah, I've, uh, I've found that when I'm doing my presentations and things, uh, a lot of uh, elderly people come who have gotten gone through a residential school system and lost their culture, uh, lost their history. And uh, they'll sit in the crowd and they'll keep mental notes of some of the stories that I tell. And then they, uh, they get positions in universities or, or uh, in government and they use those stories to, to uh, get their positions and mm. they become adult, uh, elders and then they become uh, storytellers uh, with no stories of their own. And it's a, it's a difficult thing and it's hard for me to say you shouldn't do that because I feel bad for what they've gone through. And um, mm. I, I kind of just let it slide. But uh, I have always given my stories, uh, my, my grandfather's, uh, credit for where where the stories come from when i'm telling when i actually tell those stories i'll give them the credit mm -hmm. and uh at uh, a few gatherings i had some of them come up to me some of the gentlemen who are native saying how come you're always hiding behind your grandfather and i'm telling them like this is our space this is uh, my grandfather's stories these are the things that i learned and i learned it from him and and i'm sharing those with you and and he said, uh, don't you have any stories of your own? I said, yeah, I have my own stories. Of course, I'm going to share my own stories. But I, when I'm sharing his stories, I'm going to give you his, his name. Mm 
where it comes from. And so I'm not hiding behind him, but his thinking was uh, not, uh, he wasn't thinking like a, like an indigenous person. And so in all of my social media and things like that, I'm always telling my, my relatives to think in the language mm-hmm. because when they're not thinking in their language, they're not thinking as, as a Dakota, they're not thinking as a Anishinaabe, if they're not thinking in their language. And so it's always a push for language. It's always understanding that Wooyake uh, is, is a, a sacred thing. Uh, stories, myths, and legends are, are just that, stories, myths, or legends. Hmm. But the word we have for that, woyake, that's a sacred thing. One of the questions that Jackie and I had been talking about before um, is around this idea of, I don't know if you would call it ownership or this idea that, um, I'll maybe start with an example. So recently I was writing a, an epilogue for a book collection and I wanted to include um a teaching that I had received that I had heard in a workshop with an Indigenous leader and that person's teaching had had a great impact on me and was very relevant to the theme of the book. So I went and talked to her and asked, you know, how would you feel about how I should include this or should I not? And because I wasn't sure of the protocols and um, her suggestion to me was to write it from my own perspective and what I learned instead of including the actual teaching or including her name and that was her recommendation so that's what I did Um, but it brought into this sort of question that Jackie and I have been talking about about who owns my story and what do I do when my story connects with someone else's story and how do I do that respectfully Jackie do you want to add in there about some of the ethnography questions that you've been asking um the my question was provoked for me by an email that we got from um the ethics um yeah research ethics office receptionist or whatever at brandon university asking us or telling us that if we were doing ethnographic research that we needed to apply for ethics approval and so i was saying to michelle you know this is interesting with this storytelling one coming up because if i'm telling my own story how does the university get to tell me whether or not it's ethical to ask myself to tell that story. Um, And, you know, where does the line get drawn? So the research that I've been doing is duo ethnography. Um, So two people telling their stories together. And um, it's a, it's a critical research that I've been doing about racism um, with a black PhD student from another university. Um, But now they want to have us send an ethics application so that they can assess whether or not it's ethical for us to tell our own stories and then write about them. Um, And I, questions, stories are interesting and ownership of stories are interesting. I think the question that we're asking is what does ethical storytelling look like or what does it mean in regards to the things we've talked about, ownership and legal issues and the things we've already mentioned. You want to go first, Kevin? Oh, go ahead, Doug. Okay. Um, I think it's such a tricky line of ethics because I think, especially in a university context, you have the ethics committee of the university 
And then you have the ethics of the communities that you're working with, whether it be the individual you're working with um, or individuals, communities you're working with. Um, I, I, I think the, I always go back to, for, for me, ethics of storytelling goes back to who's the story holder. And even in within, sometimes within individual story, it goes back to who is included in my story because our stories aren't really individual. Our stories, and, and Kevin talked about it before, you know, he talks about sharing his grandfather's stories. So uh, it'd be interesting actually from you, Kevin, how you, how you go about asking for that permission or how do you do that within, you know, your, your perspective and your culture to say, I'm going to be sharing an, um, uh, you know, my grandfather's story or someone else's story, what, what you process you go through that. Cause I guess it's, you know, if, I always look at it as that person who is that story holder needs to make that decision of how they're going to share it. And it goes back to challenging that idea of the individualism of storytelling or the individualism that we're so used to in Western culture. But I would argue that most cultures around the world, storytelling isn't universal in that it's, it's told through individual perspective. I think storytelling in most cultures is actually around the community. It's around, it, it, it's, it's, you can't disconnect that one person's story from the community story to the elder story to the spiritual story in so many different cultural contexts but we're so used to it whether it be an ethics committee or whether it be in an organization that we have to fit into these you know very structured rules that have been written by white people and and it's been saying fit into this so every sort of thing that we when we talk about ethics through um an organizational lens is very different when we look at it through a cultural lens and for me, ethics of storytelling is storytelling goes way beyond the institutions that have been set up. So if we're going to be looking at the ethics of storytelling, we need to go first to who are the original story holders of this. So, you know, in the lands that we're on, we're going firstly to our First Nations people to sort of say, well, what does is, what is the ethics of storytelling mean for you? And then I look at it then as my responsibility as someone in the middle who's finding out all this information, like around how Australian law works, how do I then uh, try to simplify that law? Because uh, you can't, you're not going to be able to change it because it's, you know, trying to change it, it takes a long, long time. But look at what is that law? What are, how does that, how's that been written? And how can we work with that to start challenging some of the power structures through, through information sharing? So for me, one of the things is looking at, all right, this is the way copyright and intellectual property and contract law works here in Australia. So when I'm talking to the story holders, go, these are some of the, this is some of the things you need to be consider if you choose to share your story. And the other thing is you also don't have to share your story. So one of my, one of the things I think is, is really strong is actually saying no to sharing your story sometimes because of that environment. Because I guess sometimes if you do say yes, under particular conditions, you're also then falling into that trap of perpetuating the colonial narrative. So, but a lot of times people are just are so generous. They want to share that story or they've been so conditioned into, you know, sharing the, the, the story of being grateful. Like the, I think the refugee journey is such a common one of I'm grateful to, to what, you know, this country has given to me, what the government has given to me, but it's not really that the reason they've been able to succeed is because of their story of their, ancestors because of their families because of the communities that they've connected with it hasn't actually really been the government um 
And but this is the way that sort of that that narrative is. So I guess basically for me, the ethics of the storytelling goes back to the roots of the story and that the story holders, not the institutions who set the rules, uh, the legal system that sets the rules. Anybody who really is looking at the ethics of storytelling, they have to be looking at the story holder. So any advocacy organization who is trying to build their fundraising and using somebody's face in a photo or a tweet or a longer video, they need to get, they need to get free. They need to give the, get the consent all the way through the process. And it needs to be able to give it to them, give the person a choice whether to, to be included in or not, because too often it's just only giving just little bits of information and that person's face can be then shown all around the world, the story edited, cut, and it can have such a negative impact on that person, let alone not getting any benefit from the story, but also have an impact on themselves and the communities that, that, that they are part of or might appear to be represented in that story. So, yeah, it goes all back to who is the story holder for me. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I know uh, for our Indigenous students who are doing their, their undergrad or their master's thesis, they have to go through, through ethics and, and we're, we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, how we're going to do the work that we really want to do. And so we look for a different place where somebody else has drafted the uh, uh, policies in uh, in ethics and for for us um, there's one Manitoba education or Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Center they've drafted their own uh, criteria and and when you look at it, it, it it's the same thing they're they're going to be the the spokespeople for storytellers they're going to be the 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 archives for storytellers and it's not supposed to be that way so it has to come from the storytellers themselves and they almost need uh, some kind of a, an organization themselves that they can protect themselves. Mm. But uh, it's, it's different for me and for my culture because when I was, uh, when I was growing up, I, I didn't anticipate doing a lot of this stuff in my life. But uh, now that I'm this age, I see what my grandfather and my father's see uh, it's my responsibility to look at these young kids and see who's going to carry these on and uh, I, I'll choose that next generation of storytellers and it's them that I'll pass these stories on to not to uh, not to uh, any ethics committee or, or researchers or anything like that I might share some stories here and there but I'm very careful with them um, I was, I, I was uh, put in a position where uh, I was more of a historian. Um, I was interested in the culture. And so people just started sharing with me. And uh, I, never, I never really gave tobacco or, or anything like that. But what was expected of me was that I'd be generous to the people and that uh, I take care of the older people. So that's, that's kind of how I live my life. We've done giveaways every year for, for a long time since we were very young. And uh, we make sure that the, that's something that we continue. We offer uh, food to whoever needs it, uh, things like that. And um, that's just part of the rule. And uh, so I've never really given anything for it. Uh, in, instead, they've actually given me gifts and they said, we want you to carry on these stories. 
And so in our culture, it was very, very different from, from how things work. Uh, in, in, in any other culture, I believe you would give them a tobacco or you would give them a gift for them sharing a story. But for me, they gave me these stories and they gave me the gifts to go along with them and say, it's yours, you look after it next. And so it's kind of a, a tough, tough position that they put me in. And oftentimes I felt like I, I lost my youth because I carried a lot of these stories and I, I carried a lot of that responsibility from uh, some of the older people. And to this day, they still come and they still tell me old stories. And uh, I, I listen very closely. And uh, I'm thankful that I have an iPhone because now I can write everything down inside there to help me uh, remember what I'm being told. But uh, it's just assumed when they tell me these stories that I'm going to hang on to them and share them and, and use them in a good way and not make millions off of their stories. And, and that's kind of how I, I do it. I share with their their children. So, so a grandmother down the road would tell me a story of their family and I'll hang on to that story. And as years go by, one of her grandchildren is struggling with uh, some kind of a, a problem or whatever. And I'll go see them and say, hey, this is uh, what your grandmother used to do when she was younger. And I'd share that story with them and give them connections and, and bridge those gaps. And so that's kind of the stories that, that I hang on to and that's how I use them. That's great. I, I think, and I think because you've, you're doing it through your cultural way of, of, of doing it. And so it's, it's not in, in those points, it's not crossing into the, the, I guess the messy waters of the Western uh, commodity type of storytelling because you're, you're doing it at about continuing culture, education, like doing storytelling for the, for, the, for the right reasons and the way that storytelling always was across the world was used. And it's probably only been the last, you know, couple of hundred years, where, and, and even more recently, I think, with, particularly with social media, where storytelling has really become commodities. And, and, and I think that idea of where you've go with a lot of those stories, they don't get shared outside of that environment you cho you you choose which ones are the right ones to share um i think what i find is people like yourself kevin already know those boundaries it's the ones the ones who don't know what those boundaries are um and and they they almost trust too much certain people who they think are going to uh respect that story the right way but they don't uh and and i think that's where it gets concerning because the, that person thinks, oh yeah, I'm going to share this story in this environment. Uh, maybe even this idea, I'm going to share a story to in this environment because it might have an impact, you know, change policy. It might do this, and and they've also been told by people, you tell this story and it will and it could result in these sort of changes. You know, this, 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 and they continue sharing it for years and years, but there's no policy change, and so they they but because I think they've been conditioned and saying, this is what you need to tell. And that story also, for a lot of people, the story continues to be the same story, I think for a lot of people. So um, I have that problem when somebody says, uh, come and share your story as if it's one, you have one story. And, and that person's then framed into that, that person. And that, then they, and that person's then chosen based on how traumatic the story is. Oh yeah, we want, we want, this is about the entertainment. You know, it goes, it's not even about the education anymore. It's about the entertainment to get people in the room, to make people feel um, sympathy 
and and then also to feel proud that that person has been able to fit in at the end of it all and i i think that's there's, there's so many different parts of storytelling and and you take it in different cultural contexts of how how it's being used and i think the ethics of it going back to the ethics it's so different depending on who it's being told for and what the purpose behind it is and i think you know like kevin when you're talking about it's really about the education continuing the culture um it's very different when it's these other ones where it's like oh, i want to share these stories to try and you know um change the minds of of these people over here and 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 i and i think that's where there's 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 so many different elements into that sort of storytelling and I look at it not just across race, but also whether it be gendered um, and uh, in, in the domestic violence field of that person having this sort of obligation almost feel to share a story as well. I need to share this story because the organization who, who um, has supported me through this process is now asking me to share this story here. And so it's very hard for a lot of people even to say no to sharing a story or to, to share a different type of story because there, there's so many external factors. And I think there's, there's, not the, there's not the ethical considerations by a lot of these organizations in, um, in respecting that story and, and saying, all right, what are the potential impacts of this, this type of story? And what is the... Um, and who actually is going to benefit from the story? And, and we know that that if you look if you look at like a story and and you go all right, let's look at how that story is being constructed from the very beginning. Where's the funding come from? All right, the funding's come from there. Then it's gone to here. Then it's gone to there. And then it's a it's a top down approach. And so then by the time that storyteller is actually telling the story, you go, is that actually their story? And I've been there times where where I've heard someone perform that story, and I say. And I see some at the front rows, almost like telling them what to say, you know, sort of thing, telling this part and sitting there and just like, I can tell that's not your story. And then they open up and start sharing something else. You go, now that's your story. Now you're telling the part that's, that's about you. But then very quickly you go back to the sort of that narrative because that person's going, no, you've got to talk about this. Talk about, you know, how you're studying this. So it's, it's really, I think when we look at storytelling through that that lens you know certain type of storytelling through that lens you can really start picking apart and going where what is the purpose of this story and who's benefiting from it i think those are good questions and and i, I know in the not pro, non-profit not-for-profit world that sometimes these stories get tied to fundraising efforts and so mm -hmm. that narrative is often like so-and-so had a huge problem, then our organization came along, and now so-and-so is doing so much better, please donate, right? Like, there's a very yeah. predictable trajectory to that story, and uh, yeah, I think those questions of whose story is being told and for what purpose, those are good questions. Um, I think we're, we're getting close to our time, but I wonder if um, there are things you want to mention in terms of kind of giving some advice to researchers or community members to think about what can they think about when asking someone to share their story? I think for me uh, is to understand, especially for the indigenous people of this country and that country that over there, is to take into consideration the trauma that they've been through. They've, they've been through all, all types of things. And uh, I've, I've heard uh, teachers ask me 
if there are veterans that can come to their classroom to talk and tell their story and I'm thinking, well, you want them to relive their trauma in front of your kids? And then uh, they have orange shirt, orange shirt day. Uh, some of them said, we're gonna have an orange shirt week and we're gonna have a, a residential school survivor come every day for, for the week and tell their story. Do you know anybody? And I tell them, do you want them to come and tell you what they went through in residential school? Like, I think they have to, to be considerate about uh, the stories and the storytelling that they, they're gonna bring into their, their classroom or organizations or anything like that. Like, kind of have an idea of what you're, what you're wanting and, and, and give your storytellers a, an idea of some of the things that you're looking for, what your outcomes would be. Uh, and, and they'll share what they think uh, they can share. But uh, if you're just looking for entertainment, I think you can you can find entertainment anywhere. But uh, the true storytellers are gonna be very careful with what they share. I really like that idea of, you know, you can say these are the objectives of what I'm wanting, but then you don't have any control over what that person chooses to share. And I think that's a good sort of ethical boundary, like what Doug was talking about earlier also. Doug, do you have anything to add about advice for researchers or community members when they're asking people to share stories? Yeah, I think uh, time is a big one. Uh, take time to build relationships first. Don't just go in and extract. And um, I think it, if you go in there genuinely where as a researcher or or someone working in the field and you go in there genuinely going i want to build relationships here and i think like often say working in the refugee space a lot of the people that i've ended up sort of working with have become friends because a lot of the time is also they're seeking connection so if you go in there where you're going well why am i doing this for the first place and you think well i'm if you're doing it for the right reasons when you're doing it around you know say in the refugee space and you're saying well i want to improve the the way that um uh, the outcomes for refugee people here and you start looking at well what do they want you know what, what and so giving them the time doing the that whole thing about relationship building and then the other one is transparency i think if you've got some sort of funding or some sort of outcomes that are going to come from this be transparent with them of where, what is the whole purpose of it? Where's the money coming from? Who's involved in the process? And then include them as part of the process. So don't set conditions. Uh, this is what we want you to share. I think as, as open as you can be where you allow them to be able to come into that space uh, comfortable, let them choose the space and also for them to be part of that, the, even the design process of a project, not just be, uh, you're a storyteller, so you just fit into uh, you know, part seven. Um, and continue including the whole way through and consent it's got to be continuous if there's any change to that story so you've recorded it then you're going to then distribute it um, and you're going to edit it first it's got to go back to them first because who who should be making the decisions of what's what's included and what's not and I guess that that's I guess a big part of it and that can even be if it's going to go to a different um, medium How's that going to, it's going to go from an article or, or it's going to go now into a podcast and now it's going to go to video. It's going to go now into Instagram, which is 30 seconds. Who makes that decision? So I think the more that they're included throughout the process as the story holder and um, respecting them and the, their integrity of their story, I think that is a very good place to start. 
thanks a lot for coming and sharing your ideas with us. And you gave me lots of things to think about, um, just both generally within my own life and the things that I ask of people. And as a researcher, um, uh, interested in people's stories and in trying to make a difference in our world. I think it's good to have, um, think about all of those things that 